Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Appreciate everybody being here. Appreciate all of the fellowship and the opportunity we've had to talk between worship and class. Looking forward to our Bible class this morning and the time that we have together to talk about the ministry of God. Now, when you think about Paul's letters, especially the ones where Paul wrote more than one, you think about what we sometimes call the Corinthian correspondence. Now, the book of 1 Corinthians is far more known to Bible students than 2 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians talks a lot about issues in congregations. And just about in every chapter, Paul is trying to correct some theological issue that the Corinthians have, whether it be preacheritis or fornication and the lack of church discipline in the church, lawsuits among brethren, you name it, Paul's dealing with it in 1 Corinthians. But 2 Corinthians is a book worthy of our study in its own right. Now, in 2 Corinthians, and you can go ahead and turn your Bible there. That's what we'll spend our time looking at this morning. Paul has several ideas under discussion or things that rise to the surface. Namely, Paul is defending his apostleship. If you remember in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18 and verse 8, many of the Corinthians hearing and believing were baptized. That was instigated by the preaching of Paul in the city of Corinth at Acts 18. Paul founded or started the Corinthian congregation, but by the time you read 2 Corinthians, many of the Corinthians are starting to doubt his apostleship. Some individuals, and we don't know who they were, had infiltrated the Corinthian ranks, and it started to sow seeds of doubt about Paul and his ministry. And so he would make a statement like 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, where he says, truly the signs of an apostle were done among you. And then he talks about the, the signs and the wonders and the various things that he did. And so a large part of 2 Corinthians is Paul saying, I am a genuine apostle and you all know this. Another thing that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians is the issue that I believe was addressed in 1 Corinthians 5 and how the Corinthians had done what was right. The man had been disciplined and he repented of that. And also the third issue would be the gathering up of the, the contribution. For the individuals in Jerusalem, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So those are the three main issues in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul's apostleship, the penitent brother who had sinned, and then thirdly, the contribution for the saints and others in Jerusalem. But tucked away in this book, as Paul is wrestling with certain things, are some statements about God that we definitely need to hear. You see, 2 Corinthians is unique because it's here and nowhere else that we read about Paul being so discouraged in Asia in chapter 1 and verse 8 that he actually wanted to give up. It's here and nowhere else that we read about Paul's daily battle with anxiety because of his ministry and his work, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 28. It's in 2 Corinthians and nowhere else where we read about Paul's thorn in the flesh that he begged God three times to remove. 2 Corinthians is an intimate epistle, but more than we need to read this book and see Paul's ministry and his defense of his apostleship, we need to see that in the moment that Paul needed it most, Paul says some things about the ministry of God on his behalf. A struggle for us as Christians, especially faithful Christians, is as we think about all that we need to do to respond to God, all of the faithfulness that we need to manifest and our duty to God, 
it may be tempting in all of the busyness and all of the evangelism and the prayers and the Bible studies to forget that while we have a ministry toward God, God has a ministry toward us. You see, the atheist says God is not there. The deist says God may be there, but he has wound up the world and he's not interested. But in the words of Francis Schaeffer, the theist says God is there and he is not silent. And in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul raises several statements to the surface about the God we serve, but also the God who serves us. God has a ministry toward us. The Bible says God created the world in the beginning, Genesis 1. And that he's coming back to take us home with him. First Thessalonians four, we will always be with the Lord. But what on earth is God doing right now? Second Corinthians says God has a ministry toward us. So in the time we have remaining, I just want to lift seven things from second Corinthians about God's ministry toward us as his people. What is God doing right now in our lives? What is God doing right now for his people? And how can this make a difference? It made a difference to Paul in the times he was suffering. Now, what's going to happen as we go through 2 Corinthians and we highlight these seven verses? They'll be verses you've heard before. Before I finish quoting them, you may finish quoting. You know these verses. This won't be any new information. But I want you to see it from a new vantage point. See Paul and his suffering. And his almost being canceled by the Corinthians as they began to doubt his apostleship and see him clinging not only to the truth of his conversion and his role as an apostle, but also clinging to this one reality that though the Corinthians seemed to be changing their minds about Paul, God had not changed his mind about Paul. And that's what mattered the most. The ministry of God. What does he do? Number one, the ministry of God is that God is a God of all comfort and mercy. God's ministry toward us is that God is a God of comfort and mercy. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and notice verses 3 through 5. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all mercies, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction or trouble so that we may be able to comfort any who are in any affliction or trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received of God. Number one, Paul says the ministry of God toward his people is that he is a God, he's the father of mercies, and he's a God of all comfort. The Bible tells us that God is merciful. When God revealed himself to Moses, you remember Exodus 34 and verse 6, he says, the first thing out of his mouth in Exodus 34 and verse 6, he says, I, the Lord, the Lord God, I'm merciful. God says that. Micah 7 and verse 18 says he's the father of mercies, or he delights in mercy. Excuse me, Micah 7 and verse 18. But 2 Corinthians 1 says something different. It doesn't just say that God is merciful or that he delights in mercy. It says God is the father of mercies. What does that mean? In the Bible, when someone is described as the father of something, that means they're the originator of it. They're the source of it. So the devil, John 8, 44, he's the father of what? He's the father of lies. Or Jubal in Genesis 4.21, he's the father of those that play instrumental music. That means that he's the first person to have done that. When the Bible says that God is the father of mercies, it means more than just that God is merciful and kind. It means he's the originator of it. If there would ever be any mercy extended, wherever we would hope to find it, God is the father of mercies toward his people. What does the mercy of God mean? It means that God in his kindness looks down on humanity who desperately needs his help. And when we struggle and when we're facing times of hardship, we don't fall into the hands of a careless or capricious God. We fall into the hands of a merciful God. Paul says he's the father of mercies. He gives mercy to his people. But Paul doesn't just say that. Look at the text again. He's the God of all comfort. 
God's a God that gives comfort. Appreciate the fact that God is one who extends comfort toward his people. This is a theme throughout the book of Isaiah. Isaiah picks up on this terminology of the God of comfort. When the people would come back from Babylonian captivity in Isaiah 40 and verse 1, Isaiah says they would say things like, comfort, comfort my people. Or Jesus' ministry in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, he was anointed of God to bind the wounds of the brokenhearted. What's that all about? Jesus is extending comfort. God's the God of Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. You've heard this term before, comfort food, right? You've heard of that before. It's a term that is originally said to be found in the Palm Beach Post in 1966, and it rose to prominence again in 1977 in the Washington Post. But we've sort of taken it and run with it. What do we mean by comfort food? A professor of psychology at the University of New York said, you know, comfort food isn't so much about the food, but it's about the soul trying to soothe itself with macaroni and cheese through a food-induced coma. That's what it's all about. That's what he said. He said, listen, that's what comfort food's about. And we've had all types. We've got macaroni, and we've got ice cream, and we've got chocolate. We've got all these things. And in those moments, we're saying, you know what? I'm struggling, or I'm frustrated, or I'm having a hard time. But Paul says, in the moments of difficulty and trial, what we need more than a spoon or a fork is the embrace of the Heavenly Father. He's the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He wants to embrace us. This is the ministry of God toward us. We say, well, we need to work for God. We need to serve him, and rightfully so. But Paul says, don't think for a moment that when you're serving God, that when you're busy, that when you're active, that God's abandoned you. Paul says, he's the God of all comfort. If there would be any comfort and joy, it would be through God and what he's able to do for us. And so the first thing that God does in his ministry toward humanity is he comforts us. When Israel came out of Egyptian captivity, they said about God in Exodus 19, He bore us on eagles' wings. That is, God took us up in his hands, and he cares about us. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. You're a Christian. You're struggling. You know, God is a God of mercy and comfort. Now, somebody pushes back against this, and they say, Hiram, I appreciate that. And I believe the Bible, and I don't really have any doubts about the comfort of God, but where would I find it? Because it seems to evade me. I mean, I'm really in the throes of suffering and difficulty, and I've read passages like this, and I really want to believe them and embrace them. But in my life personally, I don't really feel the comfort of God, or I don't really see any difference in my trials and difficulties. May I give you several places to look for the comfort of God or several ways in which it's manifested? Number one, the comfort of God comes through other people. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4. He says, God comforts us in all of our troubles so that we may comfort any who are in trouble with the very comfort that we've received from God. One of the ways that God ministers his comfort toward us is through other people. Now, that works two ways. The first way that works is if you're struggling, God will comfort you through other people. But the second way is that if we have come through anything in life with the help of God, one of the reasons that God has brought us through is so that we may take the same comfort that God's given us. It won't be new comfort. Paul says the same comfort we've received from God, we're to lavish out on other people. Everything you've ever been through, in part, God has delivered you from it through hardship, death, suffering, betrayal. One of the reasons that God has brought you out on the other side, according to this verse, is so that you can lavish that same comfort on other people because they need it. God comforts us through other people. Receive it when other people want to comfort you. When people want to put their hand around you, I know we want to be strong and we want to have the sort of stiff upper lip mentality. I'll get through this on my own. You need other people's embrace. You need the comfort because that's God's ministering to you. If you evade that and avoid it, you can't say in turn, well, where's the comfort of God? Look around. It's all around you. It's in auditoriums just like this one. 
God comforts through his people. Number two, God comforts us through the scriptures. You know this verse, Romans 15, 4. Whatever things were written aforetime were written through our learning, talking about the Old Testament, that we through patience, and what's the next part? Comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Don't read over that and think the Old Testament is just for factual basis for history. Paul says one of the reasons we have the Old Testament is that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. One of the ways that God comforts us is through the word of God. And I know that's true about all of the Bible, but when I read a verse like that and I think about comfort, I think about specific passages. Like what types of passages, Paul, give me comfort and hope? I would think about the book of Psalms. Every human emotion is covered in the Psalter. Frustration, anger, the desire for righteous indignation and vengeance on the wicked, suffering and sorrow. God comforts through the Psalms, but not just through the Psalms. Think about some of the patriarchal narratives that you read about in Genesis and just read through the book of Genesis and see all that the the patriarchs did and how God was with them and how often they made statements like this. God, you have been with my fathers and you will be with me throughout my entire life. God comforts us through the book of Genesis when we see God is ever with his people in the ups and downs of life. God comforts us through the word of God. Think about the gospel accounts. And how Jesus came to bring comfort to people. The grand invitation is, come to me, you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Number three, God comforts us not only through what we find in other people. God comforts us not only in the scriptures, but God also comforts us through good news. Would you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and this same word is used. In 2 Corinthians 7, 6 and 7, Paul says, God who comforts the downcast comforted us through the coming of Titus. See, Paul was worried about the Corinthians, but Paul says when Titus came along, he brought good news and God comforts us through good news. Give yourself permission to rejoice in life when you receive good news, no matter how small it is, especially when you're struggling. Don't say to yourself in times of hardship and difficulty, well, I've got these big problems going on, and yeah, this is a small blessing or something that's come about, but I would really rather this bigger situation be taken care of. You can't afford to think like that. God comforts us through good news, because in those little increments of good news, God's assuring us whatever else is not yet taken care of, he will. Paul says he comforted us through the coming of Titus, and when Titus came and relate the good news to Paul about the Corinthians, listen, Paul still writes 2 Corinthians. There are still problems. But Paul says, we've gotten a fraction of good news. And I believe that the rest will be worked out. The fourth and final way that God comforts us is through the Holy Spirit of God. Now, this does not mean anything miraculous or that the Holy Spirit is doing anything in us except to say the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the comforter. Now, how would he do that? That would be through the scriptures, through the reality that God's presence is in his people. Romans John 14 and verse 16 John 15, 26, and John 16, God comforts his people through this reality, that deity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell in his people, and that since God is with us, there's nothing on the outside that can ultimately harm us. The ministry of God is that he is a father of mercies and a God of all comfort. Here's the second way that God ministers to us from 2 Corinthians. Several of them will come from chapter 1, not all of them, though, but look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. What is God's ministry toward his people? God's ministry toward his people in the second place is that he is a deliverer. I told you that in 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions a unique occasion in his life. We don't have a lot of background on this. Commentators surmise various things about what he may be referencing, but here's what we know. The great and stalwart apostle Paul, 
who seemed to, like, unlike anybody else in the history of the world, rise from the waters of baptism and head for heaven in a dead sprint, on one occasion in his life, wanted to give up. He says in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 1 that he and his companions were in Asia and they were pressed beyond measure, so much so that they despaired of life itself. Paul didn't just want to give up, but in the ranks with Job and Jonah and Jeremiah, Paul wanted to quit life. What happened? How did he get out of it? He said we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we shouldn't trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now, here's our verse, verse 10. Who delivered us from so great a death, who does deliver and who we've set our hope on that he will deliver us again. The ministry of God is in the deliverance that he gives toward his people. He delivers. Paul mentions three, the threefold deliverance of God. He mentions the past. He mentions the present. Let's just pause on that for right now. And then he mentions a future deliverance. So who delivered us from so great a death? Can you imagine what Paul was thinking about as he wrote those words? He delivered us from so great a death. What death? Think about Paul's life before his conversion and where he was headed because of the way that he lived. Acts chapter 9, he had letters in hand to go and persecute Christians, but God changed things. He became a Christian. He delivered Paul through countless persecutions. Immediately after Paul became a Christian, individuals wanted his life. They wanted blood from Paul, but Paul was let down in a basket and rescued. In Philippi, he was rescued in Acts 16 with the earthquake. In Acts 17 in Thessalonica, Paul had been delivered. But Paul could go back beyond his own physical life and think about other times when God had delivered his people. Think about Noah. Think about Joseph. He delivered us from so great a death. Paul could say God always delivers. And then just fast forward to the third and final deliverance. There's the eternal deliverance. We've set our hope on God that he will deliver us again. That's what Paul believed. And we can focus on those two. But I want you to think about the one right in the middle. Who does deliver right now? God delivers. Paul said the ministry of God is that he is involved in delivering. Another way to say this would be he rescues his people right now, not just in the future and eternity. We long for that ultimate deliverance. But right now, Christianity is not set up in such a way that, well, life is just terrible and I just can't wait to go to heaven to get out of here. That's partially true. I really can't wait to get up out of here. But at the very same time, we're not abandoned in this moment. He delivers even now. It's what he does by nature. When Jesus, if anybody knows this, Christian should. What does Jesus' name mean but that he is a savior or deliverer? They'll call his name Jesus and he will do what? Save or rescue or deliver his people from their sins. Why? Because that's what God does. He's a deliverer by nature. He rescues. That's his ministry toward me and you. I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know what type of difficulties, what type of assaults the enemy is pressing up against you. And he might even make you feel like in those moments you're abandoned. But points like this argue against that reality. It helps us to reject the three lies that we often tell ourselves. Lie number one, God is not interested in my affairs and God doesn't care. Cast your cares upon him, your anxieties. First Peter five, seven, he does care about you. Lie number two says we can rescue and deliver ourselves. Paul says that's God's job. And lie number three says, well, God will deliver from some things, but not all things. He delivers us from all of our troubles and fears. God is a God who is in the ministry of delivering his people. It's what he does. It's what he cares about doing. 
Pliny the Younger, Pliny the Elder, excuse me, was a Roman naturalist and Stoic man who lived in the early centuries around the time of Christianity. Pliny said, if there is a supreme being or a deity of any sorts, that he cares about human affairs is the most preposterous thought. I was in the barbershop on Thursday and a man was talking about some things and he started to say some things about Christianity. And I jumped in the dialogue and we had some conversation and he said, you know what? He wasn't against Christianity. He was against all religion. And he said, you know what? That people think that the God, if there is a God, that he's concerned about their menial lives. He said, I just can't even believe that somebody would think that. Who are we? But he missed it. That's the grand, amazing point of the whole deal. David says, what is man? David had that same question, but he had a better answer. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you visit or care about him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. Why do you care? That's the grand question. It's because of who God is. Psalm 8, 3 and 4. God delivers. Now, this point and the one before it should not be taken to mean that you're going through hardships. And so am I. In our own ways, we all are. But it shouldn't be taken to mean that. God's just going to get us out of everything. If you read throughout scripture, what you often find is God has a habit of not always delivering from the fire, but often through it. That's what he does. Look at Isaiah 43. Turn your Bible to Isaiah 43 and notice verses two and three. Get this picture in your mind. This is the people coming back from Babylonian captivity. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 43, two and three, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And the floods, they won't overwhelm you. The fire will not burn you or kindle you. I am the Lord your God, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom. And Seba, on your behalf, God says, you're going to go through fire. You're going to be punished. You're going to suffer. But better than deliverance totally from hardship, God says, I'll be with you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know that one. Daniel 3, 17. And King, our God's able to deliver us, but if not, We won't bow down and serve. And how does God deliver? From fire or through it? It's often the case that God delivers through fire. What did Jesus pray in Gethsemane? Sweating like drops of blood, crying out and begging. Hebrews 5 and verse 7 says he was afraid. If there be any other way, did God deliver him from the fire? No, God delivered him through it. And he could say in his last dying breath, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he knew God was going to catch it. God was going to catch him because he often delivers, not from it, but through it. That means that when we're struggling and going through hardship, more than we need to pray merely for total deliverance, and I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for that because sometimes he wills it so, but if he doesn't, what we should be praying is, God, if there's no other way around this door but through it, I'm really going to need your help to get me through. I really need you to be with me. And in moments like that, we can rest on 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 10 and realize you don't have to twist his arm. You don't have to sort of bargain with him to, God, if you deliver me, I promise I will. He delivers. Turn your Bible to Psalm 34. I believe it's Psalm 34 that I want. Go to Psalm 34. And if you, if you mark in your Bible, would you mark these phrases that appear three times in Psalm 30, 34? Notice what David says about God. I'm in Psalm 34, and notice verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. Here's your phrase. Underline this at the end of verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him. Out of how many of the troubles? The psalmist says, out of all his troubles. Notice the next verse in verse 7. 
The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Notice Psalm 34 and drop down to verse 17. Underline this phrase. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. And what's the last part of Psalm 34, 17 say? He delivers them out of all their troubles. And one more in verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Get that. Listen, Job was a righteous man. But if he had one failing, this almost crushed him. The reality of Psalm 34, 19 almost crushed him. He couldn't get this around his head. I've been faithful. I've been righteous. Why me? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Faithfulness to God, as near as we can come, will help us to avoid and evade some uncalled for troubles. We won't sort of buy any trouble, but we won't be rid of all of it. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But here's the part I want you to underline, the last part of verse 19. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. God has a ministry toward you and toward me. And one of the things that we can count on God to do, come what may, is deliver us. David said it several times, and we can take it on his authority, not only because he's inspired of God, but he was a man who often found himself in hardship before a giant in the caves of En Gedi on the run from Saul. And here's what his ultimate conclusion was. God delivers from all my troubles. Here's number three from 2 Corinthians. The ministry of God toward us in 2 Corinthians, the third thing that God does in ministering toward us in our lives is God is a promise keeper. Would you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul says that he and his companions had made plans to come to the Corinthians. That's in verse 18 and verse 19. And he says our plans weren't yes, yes and no, no. But he says, in Christ, all of the promises of God are yes, and they find their amen in him. And it's through him that we utter our amen to God. Paul says, God keeps his promises. If you ever have any doubts or concerns about God keeping his promises, look no further than Jesus Christ. Paul says, in Christ, all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus You read throughout the Old Testament and there are promises made about the coming Messiah. And then one day, though Israel waited for centuries, the promises are realized. One day, the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3, 15. Abraham, from your descendants, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And though Israel just about tries to annihilate themselves through disobedience to God, God keeps his word. A virgin will conceive, Isaiah seven fourteen, and she'll bring forth a son. And you'll call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. He'll be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5 and verse 2. And we'll call him out of Egypt, Hosea 11 and verse 1. And every single promise that God made through Jesus Christ came to pass. Not one of them failed. God's ministry toward us is that he keeps his promises to us. God, the promise maker, is God, the promise keeper. You can bank on him. And Paul says it's because of that. That's why we utter our amen to God. You might remember a few years ago, maybe it's been a few years now, where the congressman got up and and trying to, I don't know, trying to appeal to the masses. He ended his prayer with amen and a woman. You remember that? Not only was it comical because that word doesn't mean to communicate anything about gender, but that's not what the word means. It doesn't mean that in the Old Testament or the New. What the word amen means is I affirm, so be it. I believe that to be true. That's the word often translated in the Gospels, truly, truly. When Jesus is saying that, it's amen, amen. Yes, 
What does that have to do with our point here about God keeping his promises? Paul says, because God keeps his promises, that is what fuels our amen to God. When you end prayers with amen, so be it. It's more than our way of signing off on prayers and saying the end. Sincerely us. Amen means, God, I trust you. I believe. Why? You've never broken a promise. And through Jesus, we utter our amen to God. When I say amen at the end of my prayer, of course, it's always prefaced with this idea, not my will, but your will be done. But that amen to God means I do not believe in moments of prayer that I'm speaking into the air, the open air of nothingness. There is a God who hears, that cares, and that will help because he always keeps his promises. The Bible doesn't just say that God doesn't lie. It says that he can't do that. Hebrews 6 and verse 18. What promises has God made to his people? Can you think about some? He's made a bunch, but there are certain occasions, especially in the New Testament, where the Bible says he promised, insert blank. Titus 1 and verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the ages began. He promised you a crown of life if you're a faithful child of God. James 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised. You see that? He promised it to those that love him. James 1, 12. He won't change his mind. John says this is the promise he's made to us. Even eternal life. 1 John 2, 25. God's ministry toward us is in keeping his promises. So if you re- if you read something in the Bible, God says, I'm going to be with you. You say, well, I feel alone. God keeps his promises. doesn't matter what you feel. God's promises override your feelings. The kingdom will never be destroyed. Well, the church is looking a little shaky. It doesn't matter what you see. God keeps his promises. The church will stand forever. When the dust settles, it'll be here. I will never leave you nor abandon you. God keeps his promises. That's just a guarantee. No weapon formed against the people of God will prosper. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You say, well, I feel a lot of things are separate. Nothing can separate you but sin and yourself. God keeps his promises. Don't you know Paul needed this in 2 Corinthians? Writing to a group of people who have just turned their backs on him. Paul needed to know, you know what? People are fickle, but God is not. Listen, every one of us has made promises to God. And for reasons, sometimes excuses, sometimes human frailty, for whatever reason, we've broken our word. We said, God, I'm never going to do, and we have. God, I promise I will, and we have not. The psalmist says in Psalm 56, I will remember what my mouth vowed when I was in trouble. You know, it's easy to say a lot of things that we're going to do. God never makes a promise that he can't keep. God never asks for more time to fulfill a promise. He never gets in over his head and says, oh, I didn't mean to say that I could do that. He always keeps his word. That's his ministry toward us. It's what, listen, these points in the ministry of God are more than just facts about who God is. They are the fuel that helps us in our ministry toward him. A failure to appreciate these things will leave us burdened, exhausted, and frustrated. But if we realize that there aren't just, there isn't just the human side of this, God's also involved. One time a busy preacher was asked, how do you get so much done? And to which he responded, oh, they forgot there are two of us working. God's working on your behalf. And one of the ways he does that is that he keeps his promises. Now, here's number three. Finally, we're going to get out of chapter one. Here's number four, excuse me. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. God's ministry toward us involves him leading us to triumph, leading us to victory. 
Paul says we are always led in triumph in Christ so that the manifest glory of his power might be made known to us. To some, it's the savor of death unto death, but to others, of life unto life. Paul says God's ministry toward us, God's service, his activity toward us is that he always leads us in triumphal procession. Now, in the first century, the way this would work is if one nation conquered another. So just think about the Romans. If they went in and conquered another nation, part of what they would do at the completion of that, we've seen this in sports, right? Once the team wins the championship, they come back in town and they have what's called the victory parade. Countries would do it. They would go in and they would conquer a nation and then they would come back. And they would parade those people through the streets, parade their captives and say, we have won. We are the victors. And Paul says, we are always led in triumphal procession. When the Corinthians heard this, they probably would have scratched their heads. Paul, why would you joy in being a captor? Why would you joy? Why would you joy or boast in the fact that you're led in this triumphal procession? Paul had keyed in on something that we all need to key in on ourselves. In Christ, to lose is to win. To give up everything and be possessed by him is the ultimate victory. And so Jesus could say, what would it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Matthew 16 and verse 26, God's ministry toward us is he always leads us in triumphal procession. And in doing so and being on his team and being captured by him to serve him throughout the remainder of our lives, every victory of his then in turn becomes a victory of ours. And we win with him. Not because merely of anything good that we've done, but because of his work, we join in the victory. And we receive the blessing as a result. Paul says everybody doesn't get this. For some, it's a savor of death unto death and for others of life unto life. Some people hear the good news of Jesus. They hear the victory parade is coming and they don't show up. They want nothing to do with it. But Paul says God's ministry toward us. We're the trophies in God's arena in his kingdom. And what he says through us and through our lives as he leads us in this triumphal procession is look at all of these people that I've captured. Not by force, but by their own volition, their own will. And as we shine as bright lights in the world, other people say, I want to be his prisoner, too. I want to belong to him. You guys seem like you're having a great time. Listen, we're going to serve something. We're going to serve someone. Paul says, I'm happy to be a servant who belongs to Jesus Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. Live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The songwriter said, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Don't you see, when you see Jesus has done everything for us that we couldn't do for ourselves, we say, would you just, would you just arrest me? I want to be in your service. I want to be your servant. And God says, my ministry toward you is that I will lead you in triumphal procession. We'll go to victory together. If children, then heirs, we enjoy his inheritance. Everything that Jesus possesses, save his deity. As God's chosen people that have obeyed the gospel and submitted to his kingship, we enjoy as a result. Here's number five, I believe, if I'm counting right. I'm not good at math, so somebody keep me on track, right? Or we'll have ten points instead of seven, right? All right, here's number five. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. The ministry of God toward us is that God completes us. 
Paul says, our sufficiency is of ourselves and not of God. Now, again, if you write in your Bible, you want to draw an arrow from 2 Corinthians 2, 16 and draw an arrow down to 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 5. Because in 2 Corinthians 2, 16, at the end of that phrase, Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? He's talking about his ministry and Silas and the others and Timothy, who he mentions in chapter one. Who can accomplish this great task and this work? Who's sufficient for these things? Now draw your arrow down to chapter 3 and verse 5 because it's there that Paul answers this question. Who's sufficient for these things? Those who trust in Almighty God. Our sufficiency is not from ourselves, but it's from God. God completes us. In chapter 1 and verse 21 of 2 Corinthians, Paul will say, God establishes us. God makes us who we are. That matters. It matters more than you think. You and I are tempted sometimes to trust in so many other things to complete us, to trust in so many. other. If I just when I lose weight, I'll be enough. When I finish this, when I when I finally land the job, once I get the job that I if I can just get through school, once I get through that, I'll be enough. If I can marry a spouse, once I get this per, him or her, then I will. I'll be enough. If I can get all of my kids going in the right direction, if I can just get them, I can just rest and then I'll know I've arrived and I, I can be enough. Listen, all of those things are worthy goals. And there's Bible to back up every one of those things as being a right and good pursuit. But let me just tell you that none of those things is ever going to complete you. Augustine was right when he said, in every human heart, there is a God-shaped hole and you can pour all of the world's resources into it, but it won't be filled. People have a way of disappointing us, of crushing us, of breaking us. And all the affirmation that we thought we needed from them that holds us up ultimately crumbles. That foundation won't stand. Where are we going to turn? Paul says our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but of God. I read a book last year by a man named David Zoll. And the name of the book was called Seculosity. And the subtitle is How Politics, Technology, Parenting, Careers, and All of These Things Have Become Our Religion and What We Need to Do About It. In the book, Zoll defines religion as anything we look to to complete us. Whatever we look to for our, what he calls our enoughness, whatever you look to, that's your God. Whatever you look to to affirm you and say that makes me who I am, whether that's sports or school or whatever it might be, politics or country. He says, that's your religion. What are we going to look to? Paul says, our sufficiency is from God and not ourselves. You and I need to be approved by God. That's what our hearts are searching for in the end. We want someone to approve us, someone to finally say, you matter, you're enough. And Paul says, God does. Our sufficiency is from ourselves. But he's saying more than that in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. He's also saying God equips us to get the work done. He makes us able ministers. In verse 6, he goes on to say, of the new covenant. God completes us and God says, okay, this is who you are in Christ. I don't care what you've heard or what you think you are. You're not who you think you are. You're who God says you are, period. You say, I feel saved. I feel righteous. If God says you're a sinner and you're in need of his saving grace, that's who you are. You say, I don't feel worthy. I don't feel deserving. God says, you're my child. That's who you are. Our sufficiency is from God, but not just that. That sufficiency equips us to get the work done. Who's sufficient for these things? People who trust in God. What does that have to do with our lives? God's ministry toward us. It strips us bare of our excuses. 
I'm not smart enough to do that. We don't have the resources to do that. We live in a different time. I don't think our culture, our country will accept that. Our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but of God. God's not depending on human cleverness to get the gospel in America in 2022. Our sufficiency is not of ourselves. We don't have enough people to do that. I don't know if, that, I don't know if they'd come. I don't know if they'd like it. Our, if we would stop looking inward, this is why we need this. Our sufficiency doesn't come from ourselves. Hold your hand in 2 Corinthians 3. I know that was the five-minute bell. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 8, and let me show you how this worked for Paul practically in his own life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9 that he despaired of life. You remember that we might not trust in ourselves? You see, when Paul was trusting in himself in chapter 1, 8, and 9, he almost quit. What changed him? He learned to trust in the power of God. If you try to do it in your power, you'll accomplish some things. God's wired you to be able to do it. You'll do some, but you won't do all. You won't do all that you could, and neither will I. Our sufficiency doesn't come from ourselves, but it comes from God. Now, two more in five minutes. If I was talking fast before, it's about to be breakneck speed. We've got to get these last two in. The ministry of God. Here's number six. God strengthens the weak. We don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, but in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, he begged God three times and God told him, no, listen, if God tells you, no, you're in good company. He told Jesus, no, in Gethsemane. He told Job, no, when Job demanded answers in a courtroom hearing with him. And he told Paul, no, not once, but three times. God often tells his favorites, no, I will not do that. But what would you choose? Honestly, if you could choose between the thorn free life but no presence of God or the thorn occupied life, but the presence of God all the way through. Which one would you choose? You know which one you should choose, but which one do you really want? But see, Paul said, listen, I've got this thorn in the flesh. Paul was a human. He really wanted it removed, just like you would, just like I would. God said, I'm not doing that. Paul says, well, what are my options? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. If we could have it our way, we would never have any trials, but just like toothpaste. The goods only come out when we're really pressed down upon. When we're, There are things in you and in me that don't come out of us until we're pressed in ways we couldn't quite imagine. And God strengthens the weak. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Commentators spill a bunch of ink and argue about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Nobody knows. Some people say it was his eyesight, his memories of persecuting Christians in times past. Here's what I'll say. Number one, it was not sin. God's strength isn't made perfect because people sin more. And so it's not sin. The second thing I would say is this. Could it be the case that the Holy Spirit leaves his thorn in the flesh ambiguous on purpose? If he would have named it, maybe we would be tempted to read into 2 Corinthians 12 and say, well, his thorn isn't mine. And so God's strength is only for those types of weaknesses. Maybe the Holy Spirit, by inspiration, leaves it ambiguous on purpose as if to say, whatever the weakness is, God's strength is made perfect there. He does his work with people that need him the most. Whatever it might be, Paul says, You can find the strength that you need from Almighty God. Here's the seventh and final one. God's ministry toward us is that he is a God of love and peace. That's 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 11. He says, aim for restoration, comfort one another, be at peace among yourselves, and the God of peace and love be with you. That's who he is. He's a God of love. He so loved the world that he gave Jesus. But he's also a God of peace. At the end of 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, God give you peace always by all means. I love that verse. Not just give it to you, but whatever you have to do, God, to give me peace. Not the absence of strife or difficulty, but tranquility in the midst of it to say, we will ride this storm out together. 
The only reason why there was a congregation in Corinth was because Paul went there and preached in Acts 18. He went and taught them the gospel, and in a relatively short amount of time, they had just about turned their backs on Paul. Paul wrote with the hopes that they would change, and he was optimistic that they would, but even if they didn't, he knew that though he had ministered to them and been betrayed at least partially, God was ministering to him, and he could count on the faithfulness of God. And and because of that, Paul could continue in his ministry. Every one of us, no matter our age, no matter how long we've been a Christian, has a ministry toward God. It may be being a mother, a father, a student, a deacon, an elder, a preacher, a faithful woman that is teaching and helping children and whatever our ministry is. Do not engage in your ministry absent-minded of God's ministry toward you. We are not in this alone. Paul says he is there, and he is not silent. Will you pray with me? God, we love you. We thank you for loving us, for your comfort, for your deliverance, for keeping every promise as you lead us in your triumphal procession, for completing us and making us who we are and equipping us to do your work. We have weaknesses sometimes that we can't get over. Maybe it's our lack of education or our lack of strength or our lack of health. And we thank you for being perfect and your strength being perfect in our weakness. Thank you for being a God of love and peace. We long to be in heaven with you. But until that time comes when we can escape this present world, we need you to be with us and to continue to minister toward us as we, with everything in our power, try our best to minister toward you. And it's based on Jesus and every faithful promise that you've kept in him that we offer up this prayer. And it's in his name that we utter our amen to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.